Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. I'm Gabrielle Hawkowit. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. And we are here to talk about Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. Now, we have a lot to talk about today, and I don't want to waste any time getting into it. So let's get started. Um, if you remember two weeks ago, we had the second of a pair of episodes detailing the life and influence of the IFB's most central and influential figure. And this guy was a pastor named Jack Hiles. We talked about his life, his ministry, his college, his infidelities, later years, and his death. But today we are going to talk about his son, David. So David Hiles is the only son of Jack Hiles. And he yeah. was the the heir apparent to his father's ministry. Uh, Jack and his wife, Beverly, had four children, Becky, David, Linda, Cindy. And they had all grown up during those years of massive growth and change at First Baptist Church of Hammond. So like when he came from uh, from Texas. Right. So the first three of them were born in Texas, and then they moved to Hammond when Cindy was either a newborn or just about to be born. I'm sorry, I can't remember which. They grew up while the church was like... Yeah, he would have been about five when they came to First Baptist Church of Hammond. So that first 10 years where things were really exploding, that was his childhood and his early teenage years. Well, from a young age, David, he really distinguished himself as as a preacher and a speaker. He was able to pick up on some of his dad's charisma, the way he treated people. And by age 18, David was made youth pastor at First Baptist Church Hammond. So he was leading a huge youth group. And these are teens that are just like a year younger than he was at the time. So I take it, you know, I don't really have experience with this, but youth pastor is a pretty prominent role. Fairly. Yeah. I mean, there are there are roles that would be above that. But for somebody who's 18, that's... 
incredibly high ranking. Okay, so suffice to say that David was given both a lot of power early in his life, and he was seen as one of the real First Baptist Church of Hammond leaders of tomorrow. But this story really gets pretty dark. And I should say right out front that this story, um, this is basically the trigger warning right here that it's going to involve violence. It's going to involve child abuse. It's going to involve physical and sexual abuse. It's going to involve murder, uh, possibly. Yeah. Uh, um, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. This definitely has the potential to be one of the darkest and most violent episodes of our show. As always, we're going to try to present these these topics in the most respectful way that we can. But yeah, this this show um, specifically includes just descriptions of rape. And I also wanted to add the death of a young child um, is another trigger that you might find. We're going to warn you right before that one happens. So it, this is this is a lot, but it is a... Um, it is a really, really interesting story. Yeah, and if you don't want to, um, if you don't want to listen to that, then just skip this episode. Uh, if you do want to listen to that, though, this story, like, I mean, this story tells me then like, you're more my type of person. <laughs> yeah, and this story is like a lot about like what kind of organization First Baptist Church of Hammond is, and what type of. Um, what what type of uh, uh, environment the in independent fundamental Baptists uh, create? Mm -hmm. When I first learned about David Hiles from Sadie, I just knew that he was Jack Hiles' son and that he was disgraced in some way. So I knew who David Hiles was uh, pretty much as long as I can remember. He was always mentioned around me by adults in the IFB in kind of spooky, hushed tones. You know, I didn't know what he had done, but I knew he had done something awful because I would hear, you know, you don't want to do what Dave Hiles did or, you know, you don't want to have happened to you what happened to Dave. And it was like what these... Happened to. Yeah. And it was like, uh, <laughs> it is, yes. But these things were like these whispered curses that hung over my childhood. And I was, of course, very curious because I was a curious child and I'm a curious adult. But it took me a very long time to, to be able to access any more information about, you know, what happened to Dave. When we were doing the research for our, uh, the Jack Hiles episodes that we did uh, two weeks ago and uh, four weeks ago, when we were in that process, uh, we stumbled across the first five chapters of a book that was written by Linda Hiles Murphy, who is one of the daughters of Jack and Beverly Hiles and the sister to David. These five book chapters were a pretty big find for us because they contained some startling information. So in the last episode, we talked about the Biblical Evangelist article. That is the IFB newspaper article that accused Jack Hiles of adultery and financial mismanagement. That is the article that began the Battle of 1989 that rocked the IFB world. And we talked about how it felt for me to read that article for the first time a few years ago when I was just in the early stages of my journey out of the IFB. When we got these, the, this copy of the first five chapters of Linda's book, it was just as difficult. It was just as shocking of a moment for me. I thought that the biblical evangelist artic article had already shaken my worldview as much as it possibly could be shaken. Uh, I did not think I would ever read something that would be a bigger deal or harder for me to accept. And then I read these chapters of Linda's book and I just cried and I cried for hours. It was so difficult for me to read. 
Yeah. Um, so for this reason, we made the decision to leave the information that we got from those five chapters out of our Jack Hiles episodes because the information in it, like basically so completely changed the perspective that Sadie had that we wanted to show what that perspective was originally and mm-hmm. like actually take a look at that and take a look at it from that perspective, which, you know, she held um, for a good number of years, even after leaving the IFB. We felt that that was like a perspective that was worth exploring. Yeah. And so that was that was why we decided to to not use any of that new information in the, the Jack Hiles part two episode, because going through that kind of shock and change again <laughs> at this point in my journey was really difficult. But in a way, it was like the best thing that could have happened, because, well, like like Gabrielle said, we kept the episode that you heard two weeks ago, faithful to the way that I originally wrote the episode before reading these chapters. And then today's episode, you'll hear me speak from the new perspective that I gained since then. Going through these shifts is just a part of leaving a cult. And it is never easy. And it's certainly never easy for me. But I am so thankful that it came at the time that it did. Because this time I get to take you, the audience, along with me as I experience that shift. And as much as it's painful and uncomfortable for me, uh, I think it could not have come at a better time because now I get to demonstrate what that's like to go through that. Yeah. I mean, when she read those, we couldn't record for like two weeks. Yeah, it was rough. When that happened. Yeah, it was rough. So we had to basically put work on other stuff for like two weeks and we, we couldn't record or like really work on another episode for a while. But these first five chapters of this book, basically they detail the upbringing of Linda Hiles. I guess she's Linda Hiles Murphy, but then she was just Linda Hiles. And they provide a view into the home uh, life of it, what what she described is not is not good. It's it's really not. So the Hiles children, the correct age order is Becky, David, Linda, and then Cindy, and. Uh, all of these people come back in their own way later in the story. And they're all about like two years apart. Uh, two years or a little bit more. So at the the book mentions like a few isolated stories from Linda being a small child, like five years old. But it really picks up as a narrative around 1969. Uh, Becky is like 17 or 18. She's already gone off to college in another state. David is like about to be 15 or just turned 15. And then Linda's about 13 and Cindy's about 11. At this point in the story, First Baptist Church has grown astronomically. That that huge original period of growth has already happened. From the 60s with the bus ministry. Right. And then Jack Hiles is having the beginnings of ideas for a Christian school for First Baptist Church of Hammond's members' children. And then he's starting to have the first concepts of what would become Hiles Anderson College. So um, last time we talked about the Battle of 1989... Um, And we talked about this alleged affair between Jack Hiles and Jenny Nischik. And in this book, basically, we see Beverly Hiles, who is, once again, Jack Hiles' wife. She is leveling those accusations at her husband. So she is she is accusing him of of cheating on her with this woman, Jenny Nischik. Right. So according to according to Linda, young teenager ish. Yeah, she is seeing her mother uh, accuse her father of this this uh, alleged affair with Jenny Nischik. And if you'll excuse me, I want to slip into IFB and KJV mode. For a second, I promise What's it's for KJV? King James Version. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Uh, I promise it's for a good cause, though. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so Second Corinthians thirteen one says, 
In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And Christians, the IFB in general, really like to use this verse to say that if one person accuses someone, uh, for example, like if a woman accuses a man of rape and there was no no, no witnesses, no one else to corroborate that accusation, that her accusation shouldn't be taken seriously. Basically, that you need two witnesses minimum to accuse someone of anything. So people, Oof. yeah, people like to use this verse to, to say that. But what I wanted to point out here uh, is that in addition to the accusations from Victor Nischik, um, Jenny's husband, and his and Jenny's daughter, Judy Nischik, uh, we are also seeing in Linda's book, accusations from Beverly Hiles and from Linda Hiles Murphy. And I thought that was important to point out because minimum, we are hearing from four witnesses because those are four family members. And they they know what's going on. Right. So um, I know that verse about two or three witnesses is really, really popular. So for anybody who's listening that's IFB or is is on the fence about these accusations, I thought that was an important verse to point out that we do have four witnesses who were very close to the situation. But it's not really the affair that we're concerned about because we already knew about that. Mm -hmm. We talked about that last time. What I want to talk about is Jack Hiles and his son, David, and their response to these sorts of accusations. So the way that Linda tells the story is actually, I think, just a, a really apt description. She talks about Beverly Hiles using the analogy of a boxer. So... Beverly is like this boxer who comes into the ring with an opponent who's far beyond her size and strength. And she describes Beverly just screaming accusations at her husband, accusing him of the Nischik affair, accusing him of affairs with other women. And um, she describes Jack Hiles as responding very calmly, using scripture to talk down to her and and never raising his voice back to her and just being very calm and very stern and um, kind of just, just putting her down with scripture, trying to put her down Ooh. with logic. And the other thing that she describes is Jack Hiles saying to his children, your mother is insane. We're going to have to put her in a home. Yeah, but this talk isn't actually about her being insane because the way she's describing it, it doesn't seem to me that Jack Hiles, like even at all, expected his children would believe him that she was crazy because it appeared to me, at least from when I was reading it, he was trying to show that he had absolute power in this situation that there was nothing that Beverly could do about it. And that these descriptions of Jack Hiles, like quoting the scripture at her, at his wife um, and using them to like berate her, I guess maybe berate isn't the right word, but like browbeat mm-hmm. is that? Yeah. Cause he's not like yelling at her. He's just like, you know, uh, he's just, he's being condescending. Yeah. He's being deeply condescending. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of doing what she's doing and starting to yell, he is, pretending that he's higher or better than that entire situation and just talking down to her like a child. It's it's like he's a lawyer arguing like obscure laws in front of a judge and trying to get his objections sustained mm-hmm. is how is how I saw it and like the opposing counsel is just either inexperienced or just like undermatched and he's just like walking all over her. And I think it's you're just, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think the insanity thing could have just been like a softball attempt at gaslighting her. Gaslighting the children or, or something. Or gaslighting the yeah. children. I think it's more likely that you're right and that he was just asserting his power. Because think about what he's saying to the children. The message that's getting across is, your mother is defying me. And with my power, I can say that she's insane. Turn you against her and just put her away in a home if that's what I need to do. And if you defy me, I can do that and I can do worse to you. Beverly and Jack 
weren't the only ones that were taking part in this battle. Because what we what uh, what Linda describes, uh, what we see is David Hiles taking the side of his father in berating his own mother, almost like it's like a a, a biblical like like a scripture based WWE tag team match. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because like uh, it it is it's a big show that that is being put on. And I think that's what's so cruel, and that is what was tri- like triggering and upsetting to me reading this was that Beverly is going into this like this is a fight for my life and a fight for my family, and Beverly is fighting with like the desperation, and Jack Hiles is yeah, and he is just like knocking her down just like easily and carelessly just like nope nope nope, and I think that level of like condescension I, that is what I think was was like so upsetting for me to read but when when they had these verbal battles what we found out from this book is that david hiles would pose as like sort of a biased cheating referee so he would repeat his father's vitriol and his father's you know nasty words to his mother so it's like the two of them together tag teaming you know pummeling her with words and the way linda describes it is it's until the point where she could no longer physically stand up and these chapters, um, they physically hurt me to read. It was it was not pleasant reading. Yeah, and that's uh, that's from somebody who didn't grow up with these people as like mythical characters. But just like seeing these people, like these are real people. This actually happened. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is. It's painful. So the other story in particular from Linda's book that we found especially uh, important to the David Heil story was about what happened when Beverly briefly left the home. So in the last episode, we we very quickly mentioned this incident. Around 1970, Beverly Hiles had quietly packed her bags, left the Hiles home for about six or eight weeks. Um, she was with her mother in Texas for a while. And then she came back and went to the, the Hiles vacation home on Lake Michigan. And then finally was decided or was persuaded to return home. When she did come home, Jack Hiles was not at the house, and the children were home. And when she did try to come back, David stood in front of the door and wouldn't let her in. Yeah, so these five chapters of this book were basically my introduction to David Hiles. And I just like heard some of the things that he'd been accused of before, but I didn't really like link it up to a while. I just thought, oh, he was like a bad seed or something. But like what I realized from reading this is that he was raised this way intentionally and that his father had basically intentionally father uh, fostered this type of malice. We'll get into that later. But it, he basically created an environment where he could not ever be held accountable for his actions. So later in life, I think there is good evidence for David being a sex addict, I think there's plenty of evidence for him being a rapist. I think there's evidence of him being a murderer, personally. That's my opinion. But these aren't isolated incidents that we're talking about. These are not sins or mistakes. This is a lifetime of selfishness without consequences. And I think Linda's book shows that it started very young. These are not just isolated incident incidents. It's a lifetime of cover-up work by Jack Hiles. And this did not start 
1979 or 1980, the first time David Hiles is accused of rape. This started many years before, and that's what we're trying to show with these these uh, incidents from Linda's book. This started with a young man being praised for berating his mother. This started with a teenager who watched his father cheat on his mother without consequences. This started with a vast imbalance of power, with a power structure where if you are male and your last name is Hiles, then you are at the top of your world. Um, but he's like the IFB's Chris Brown. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so David Hiles is very much following in his father's footsteps when it came to to being an early adult, at least as far as the church is concerned, because he's become the youth, the youth pastor at First Baptist Church of Hammond. He's putting out books through the publishing company that's run by his, his father, including one called The Christian Manhood Manual, <laughs> which... <laughs> I, I I have written down insert manhood joke here, but you don't have one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's low it's low hanging fruit. I'm just gonna. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a little. That's fine. Suggestive. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, David becomes a youth pastor at First Baptist Church of Hammond at the age of 18. So probably the age where he would make a joke like that. <clears throat> So there were probably people in his youth group older than he was at the time. And it was in 1972 that he turned 18 and became a youth pastor. Um, and then he like started going to Hiles Anderson College at the same time as he was already a youth pastor. There is a really interesting promotional flyer, and this is also linked in the show notes, from a conference that he preached at around this time. So it would have been around 1973. And it reads, quote, citywide campaign with the world's greatest men. End quote. And the world's greatest men are Jack Hiles, 19-year-old David Hiles, and like one other guy. World's greatest. World's greatest. Okay, no, you know what this sounds like? This sounds like a flyer for a showcase by your local rap label. <laughs> yeah, like greatest rappers in the world. No, it, no, it's a flyer for... <laughs> It's a flyer for a showcase for a rap show where where Trevor and Corey are, are opening and then Bubbles is the other guy and then J-Rock is the headliner. The one from, from Trailer Park Boys? Yeah, J-Rock. Yeah. Oh, my God. No, uh, no. it's like the, the rapper is somebody named Young Maurice. But oh he's gosh. like 32 at this point, <laughs> but he's like trying to get off the ground. Oh, Ugh. man. So, yeah. 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 World's greatest men. All three of them at this one particular conference in like Tennessee. So other than the the obvious comedy value, that flyer is interesting because it lists David as two particular accomplishments that he has done. It lists him as the leader of the largest youth work in the world. And it lists him as the creator of teen soul winning. And this is interesting because we both know that David was put into the position of youth pastor by his father. And we also know that he was prompted to start the teen soul winning ministry by his father. So both of these like major accomplishments that he's being praised for are things that were absolutely literally handed to him by his dad. He didn't even do it. He didn't build that team. Yeah, group. he didn't he didn't do it. He yeah. just took it over the minute he was old enough. And he didn't come up with teen soul winning either. His dad did, and then he told him how to do it. So things like this are, are why I think it's fair to call him the heir apparent. Because it seems very obvious to me that his dad is setting him up with the easiest path possible to become the pastor of First Baptist Church of Hammond one day. I mean, think about it. Those teenagers that he is leading in the teen group, by the time 
Jack Hiles passes away and David is old enough to take on the role of pastor, who is supposed to be the membership of the church that would be voting him in. The teens that are in the teen group that he's leading. Right. As a side note, um, because I did get asked this by someone else I told this story to. Not every IFB pastor passes his church down to his son. It's not like a monarchy situation uh, because the church would still have to have the members vote the son in as pastor. It is incredibly common for pastoring a church to be passed from father to son. So I'm glad that you brought this up because this is a distinction that I think is really important to make. Um, Say I had a family business and I had a son or daughter and I wanted them to follow in my footsteps. Like, Sure, you know, I'd raise them in the business, but I'd also show them the ropes from a young age, but I'd also like show them like, okay, this is how I built this from the ground. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't go out of my way to make it easier on them. I'm like, right now I'm reminded of the story that my dad told me, like, because his father had a drugstore in Connecticut. Like my dad worked in the drugstore when he was a teenager. And my grandfather would always tell him that he's like, I have a much higher standard for you than I do for any of the other employees. But this like this seems like it's the exact opposite of that. What we've got here is we've got this trifecta where he has power and he has entitlement. And then there's also this complete lack of any sort of consequences for his actions. And I think this combination is like extremely dangerous. I, I couldn't agree more. I think what's going on here is that David learned very young that he would not be held accountable for his actions. Uh, Another thing that Linda says is that he starts pursuing girls sexually just like as soon as he hits puberty. So like 13 years old. I mean, that's not completely abnormal. Oh, no, of course not in in the real world. Um, But we're talking about a culture where you're expected to not hold hands until you're married. This culture, like we've talked about before, where even being in a car alone or being in a room alone with someone of the opposite gender is a huge taboo. And David is going ahead and just doing whatever he wants to do. Um, from the age of, of 13 and 14, even though his father's in the pulpit every Sunday morning and every Sunday night telling everybody Oof. else, you're not allowed to do those things. Wow. So I've got to ask, like, was he successful? So I, I can't say with certainty because I don't know, but I will tell you what we do know. David marries Paula Teverbaugh in 1974. Paula is a girl who grew up at um, First Baptist Church of Hammond. And when Paula and David are engaged... Jack Hiles has premarital counseling with Paula and um, wait. So this woman, like this woman has premarital counseling with her soon to be father-in-law. Yeah. Mm, That makes my hair stand on end. So he later did the same thing with his own daughter. I'm not sure which one of those is weirder to you. The daughter is definitely weirder. Okay. Um, Well, we're we're going to get to that. Those are both weird. (laughs) That's actually a story that we're going to get to. Um, So this is also unusual, though, because Jack Hiles is meeting with Paula alone in his office without anyone else there. Isn't that like super not allowed? Yeah, that is super not allowed. So it's just one more uh, one more example of I made the rules and I'll break them if I want to. So in these premarital counseling sessions, yes, it absolutely does. Hiles is asking Paula whether she and David, his son, have ever kissed. So she tells him the truth and she says yes. Hiles starts asking her like these super detailed questions about this. So she he wants to know how many times they've kissed and like where they were when they kissed and like how it felt for her and like if they'd done anything else. And he like makes her go into absolute maximum detail. Uh, ew. 
Yes, I agree with that noise very much. (laughs) So what we know is that Paula admits to Jack Hiles that she and David kissed before they were married. And we know from her testimony that he asked whether they had had sex, but she doesn't really say definitively in her testimony uh, whether she told him yes or no. It's really nobody's business, is it? Right. I mean, it really isn't uh, because they were consenting adults. (laughs) Uh, So I'm not going to get ahead of myself. (laughs) So um, we know that Hiles asked if they did have sex. And we know that if she had said, like, we know that Paula told him the truth, most likely whatever the truth was, but she hasn't really ever come out and said one way or the other. So fair enough. The next part of Paula's story, though, she talks about hers and David's wedding day. And on her and David's wedding day, Jack Hiles says in front of the entire church how proud he is of David and Paula because they are about to have their first kiss at the wedding altar. And Paula talks about how embarrassed she was because she knows that there are a bunch of other women that David has kissed sitting out in the audience of the wedding. And she knows that Hiles is telling a lie from the pulpit as well because she herself had told him that they did, in fact, kiss before the wedding. In in their mindset, Paula is getting, like, damaged goods. You know, she is getting somebody else's leftover trash. What the hell? Here's, a, here's one of the bad parts. Buckle up. So... Sometime between his marriage and 1978, David develops a really nasty habit of sleeping with young women in the youth group. No, I'm sorry. Hang on. Let me try that again. They're underage and he's an adult. So we're going to rephrase that. David develops a really nasty habit of raping underage girls. That escalated quickly. Yeah, that's the first. That's the first of many. You you would do well to yeah. just prepare yourself. Yeah. So let me point out again what we know and what we don't know. We know that two women have come forward publicly and with their name attached, publicly said that David Hiles raped them while they were teenagers in his youth group. One of the two is Joy Evans Ryder, who is one of my personal heroes. Uh, She has come out with a detailed statement about what happened. She says that David Hiles raped her repeatedly from the time she was about 15 until she was about 17. We have to be careful about what we say as fact, but there are several dozen girls who have been rumored to be his victims in that youth group as well. Oh. So what we do know is that there are at least two, according to those own those people's own testimony. We think there are likely more. Uh, and well, you'll see in, we'll see in a few minutes why I wonder this, but we don't know whether there are also adult women inside or outside the church who are having consensual affairs with David as well. And so, like, how does the church and, like, his father and his wife deal with all of these really egregious offenses and crimes? First, my main source for this, by the way, it is a lawsuit that's filed by Joy Evans' writer, um, came forward as a victim, and then she worked to remove the statute of limitations for sex crimes against a minor in the state of Indiana. One reason why she's one of my personal heroes. And after she was successful in getting that law changed, she is now able to sue David Hiles in civil court. So I'm getting this information from statements that she has made. Most of it comes directly from statements in her lawsuit. So this whole like David Hiles thing has real implications. Yeah, 40 years later, but it's like it could have major implications for like thousands of people. Yeah, could. Legally. Wow. So. Yeah. yeah. But back to the original question, like what happened with uh, like his wife and his father? How did they react to this? So 40 years ago in 1980, Joy takes her father, who's a prominent church member 
at First Baptist to one of these illicit meetings with Dave Hiles. So Joy goes into the hotel room where David is. She says, I told my parents what you've been doing to me. My father is waiting outside in the car. You and I are done. This is never happening again. Wow. Yeah. And and so she was she was about 15 uh, when the rape started. He was born in 1954. So in 1980, that would make him 26. And she was 50. Oof. She was yeah. 15 when it started. She says the first time was in his office at the church. Uh, she says there were about 50 instances of rape. Uh, she was on a church singing group. Um, she was in the, the team group singing group. And Dave Hiles was a chaperone for the singing group. So he had access to her in multiple different states. Um, and she says she think best she can figure there about 50 times. And then she was about 17 when she got fed up and told her parents. And it took her quite a while to report. And that's because... David told her that the classic rapist lies like no one would ever believe you if you told because I'm more powerful than you. Or if you tell, then no one will ever marry you because you're not a virgin anymore. So like all the classic nastiness. Joy's father goes to Jack Hiles. And so what does what does Jack Hiles do? So there are two sides of the story here. So here's the Hiles side. Hiles says that Miller Road Baptist Church, where he was the pastor right before he came to pastor in Hammond. In Texas. In Texas. Garland, Texas, just so happened to call Dave to work on their staff at around the same time and that they didn't even ask Jack Hiles if they could, you know, invite his son to come work on staff. Hiles also claimed later in life that he didn't know his son had problems, quote, had problems, unquote, uh, before he went to Miller Road Baptist Church, which is most, you know, almost certainly a lie because, uh, yeah. Evans, Wendell Evans, Joy's father, was in his office personally telling him that your son has raped my daughter before that happened. And so that's the official story, but like what actually happened? So the Miller Road Baptist Church deacons, on the other hand, say that Hiles called them and said that his son, who he highly recommended, was looking for a church staff to join. And he practically begged the church to take his son as a staff member. So basically, Jack Hiles realized that his son was becoming a liability and then shipped him off somewhere, basically just out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. So Dave was literally spirited off overnight across the country, literally overnight. So like what happens with Joy? Because she's like the real victim here. Well, yeah. Um, so shortly after this, Joy's father becomes president of Hiles Anderson College. And I, I can't prove this in any way, but um, a lot of people have wondered if these two things might be related. As far as IFB, as far as like IFB gigs go, yeah, it's also a very high, very, very high status gig. But you asked about Joy and what happened to her. Sorry for getting on the soapbox one more time, but this is another example of how the woman and the, the woman and the victim are always last. Their considerations are always last. So the answer is <laughs> that Joy graduated from Hammond Baptist High School. She went to Hiles Anderson College. She transferred to another Bible college. She married a missionary. And she suffered in silence for literal decades before finally coming out. Um, during that time, there is a story about one, one time Jack Hiles decides to honor her and her husband. Uh, who are, they, were they were missionaries to Papua New Guinea for decades. 
before she came out about all this. And Jack Hiles made her come up onto the platform and accept a large check from him. And people who were there said that the vibe was very weird. So she suffered for a very long time. And then she finally came out. And now she has the chance to maybe see her rapist in court if the judge decides to hear the case against him. So this is a truly stunning indictment of the way that sex crimes are dealt with in the legal system. Jack Hiles basically buys off Joy's father is the implication here is Mm -hmm. uh, to preserve what's left of his son's reputation and then ships his son off without warning to going about like, and he doesn't even warn the church about this behavior. Like he doesn't say, Oh, I'm sending you guys my son. Oh, turns out he, you know, keeps raping members of the youth group. I mean, isn't this exactly the same thing that the Catholic church got in trouble for doing? I mean, yeah, this is the basic idea. Yeah. And spoiler alert, this is not the last time this is going to happen between Jack Hiles and Dave Hiles. Jesus Christ. I, I told you to be careful, yeah. <laughs> like, to, to, you know, just be ready for this episode. So Paula says that after being shuffled off to Miller Road, uh, David changed his life and stopped raping people. No, no, that's not correct. Sorry. David changed his tactic. He had seen that messing around with teenage girls got him over his head and could have put him in jail. So instead, he started having affairs with married women in the church because married women have something to lose so they won't talk. What a hero. Uh, Making the big sacrifices. I mean, he was so, so, so sorry that he was caught. <laughs> so in, in this time, I'm bad about laughing. But. I know. Yeah. So it's either it's either 1980 or 1981 that David gets shipped off to Miller Road. It's a little hard to track down exactly what year this is. David and Paula have two children, both girls, and those children are born in 1980 and 1981. Pretty much as soon as David set foot at Miller Road Baptist Church, this started again. That's upsetting. Yeah. You think fatherhood would change a guy? I feel bad for any girl that has to grow up with David Hiles as a father. I feel bad for any woman that has to be in a room with David Hiles for any reason, ever. Facts. Yeah. David was at Miller Road Baptist Church for about four years. It could have been three years or it could have been four years. Uh, We know that when he went there, it was either summer of 1980 or summer of 81. And we know that he left Miller Road in September of 1984. And some pretty important things happened in the IFB world while he was there. So in 1980, John O'Reilly died. In 1981, Lester Roloff died. And then in 1983, Lee Robertson resigned his church because he was he was getting too old to pastor. John R. Rice is the guy who wrote the racist book that we talked about in the Rock yeah. and Roll episode, right? Yeah. Who's who's Lester Roloff? So John R. Rice, yeah, he's the guy who wrote that book. He was a mentor of Jack Hiles. He was a fundamentalist writer. And as I've looked into him more over time, I found out that he was just as misogynist as he was racist. I'm shocked. Oh, I, yeah, me too. So surprised. Anyway, Lester Roloff was an evangelist and a pilot whose full story we will have to tell one day. It is really interesting. Um, He is also the person who founded some girls' homes that were really, really abusive. The story of how he died, though, is one of the coolest death stories in the IFB. And it's so much less tragic than the one we're telling today. 
the two we're telling today. So Lee Robertson, um, the third guy I mentioned, he's another influential IFB pastor who was affiliated with Hiles Anderson. So these three men, the two two deaths and one retirement, they're significant because they're all older fundamentalists who influenced Jack Hiles. So the deaths of people who were like his mentors and his teachers signify the passing of the metaphorical torch from men who influenced Hiles to Hiles really becoming the leader of the IFB movement. And this is relevant to David because he wants to solidify his place as the next pastor of First Baptist Church of Hammond and de facto leader of the IFB movement. Even after he's like a known child rapist and philanderer. Well, yeah. What the hell? What do they what do they think is going to happen? <laughs> they think Honestly. They think Jesus is going to change him? Ah, uh, that's never how it works. <laughs> I'm aware. So, anyway, uh, here's the kicker. David is at MRBC, Miller Road Baptist Church, for three or four years. And in that time, as best as we know, he had between 14 and 19 affairs in those three to four years. So we know the minimum number is 14 because of how he got caught. Dear Lord, 14 affairs. At least. Probably 14. closer to 19. Yeah. Okay, I want to point something out to all of our listeners. Um, <laughs> is that Sadie sent me a picture of David Hiles, and I just assumed that, like, if he were this prolific of an adulterer, he would be like especially handsome. Like I was expecting Marlon Brando. This man looks like George from Seinfeld. <laughs> he so does. He if you like if you told me that he got fired from a job and then he kept <laughs> showing up anyway, like in the hopes like that they'd forget. Or like that he gave he accidentally gave a free sandwich punch card to a homeless person and then tried to get it back like i would believe you he does <laughs> just like like he looks like george he looks like george costanza he really does he's not a handsome man i know i don't get he it he was a little bit better looking when he was younger but okay. still not that good looking so uh here's what here's what well my theory is that he picked up from his dad how to be insanely charismatic but more on that later so here's what happened at Miller Road Baptist Church, all of David's affairs were married women except for one person who was divorced. Paula, his wife, had suspicions. Because right, he's married. He's, he's married and he's got this, two yeah. little, two, two tiny daughters. And she is suspicious. He's got two legitimate daughters. Duh. Uh, she's suspicious that he didn't leave his philandering ways behind in Hammond. And they only have one car. So she cooks up this plan. On a Wednesday night, she steals the keys to the car, which makes him late for church because they live kind of out in the country, like 30 minutes away from the church. And like if she steals the car keys and leaves him stranded somewhere, he's going to have to get a different ride to church. So she gets to the church like like before he does, and she can use the keys on the key ring to sneak into his office at the church. In his office, she finds... Sex toys, porn, love letters, all kind of stuff. Uh, and most of all, a briefcase full of Polaroid pictures. These like Polaroid pictures show him having sex with 14 different female church members. What is wrong with this man? And who is taking the <laughs> pictures? So I get the feeling that they were selfies. Sadly, I haven't seen them, but you know who has? Would you Would you want to see them? Oh, yeah, I absolutely would. Because proof is no. evidence. Evidence is everything. This I've, I know what David Hiles looks. I don't want to see these pictures. 
See, I'm that Ugh. is that's the kind of person that I am. Like, no. I don't care how gross it is, and I don't care like how much it gives me nightmares for how many years to see that. I would still absolutely want to see every single picture because to me, proof, like proof is so important and evidence is so important. And we talked about in the Hiles episode, the Jack Hiles episode, you know, Vic Nistrick saying, oh, there's physical proof for this and then we never get to see it. Yeah. This is physical proof that I know exists and I, and I think I know where they are, but that's another story for another time. But you know who has seen those pictures? Do I want to know? No, you absolutely don't, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Oh, God. So who saw them is the church janitor's son, because he was playing behind the church, and he found a nice-looking briefcase in the dumpster. How old is this kid? Twelve, according to the story. That's not great. No, no, it's it's That's, not. Uh... Um, the kid, there might, be a, there might be a silver lining to this, because the kid only found the briefcase... Because after Paula finds all of this stuff in the office, she confronts Dave right before this Wednesday night church service and they have a huge fight. And then she takes the kids and goes to stay with his sister, Linda. Oh, okay. Yeah, that Linda. So Dave, and this is like another great example of him just being so arrogant and cocky. He throws all of this stuff in the church dumpster. Bad, like garbage bags full of sex toys and porn in the church dumpster without trying to hide it at all, just in garbage bags. So the silver lining is the kid only just found the briefcase. So the janitor takes these pictures to the deacons and the pastor, of course, and Dave gets kicked out of Miller Road Baptist Church very quickly, leaving 13, uh, 14 broken marriages, including his, in his wake. Jack Hiles tries to convince Paula and David to stay together, but he tries to get them to go like on a 30-day, you know, vacation together to work things out. But ultimately, that's not successful. Paula leaves him for good, taking both of their children. And David settles down with one of the 13 women in the church. Her name is Brenda Stevens, and she and David leave her older child or children, I think there's two older children, with her ex-husband, Mr. Stevens, and they take her youngest child, who is a newborn, Brent, and Brenda Stevens, Brent Stevens, and David Hiles move back to Indiana together. Wait, so Brenda Stevens knows that there are at least 13 other women, and she still marries David Hiles and moves with him to Indiana? Yep. What? So I have another fun fact. (laughs) Dear Lord, what is this one about to be? So around this time is when a certain church member from First Baptist Church of Hammond asks Dave for his blood type because she's wondering if her son belongs to him. This is her son, by the way. He does look remarkably like Dave Hiles. This has got to stop. I mean, so you sound like you need a little break. Um, yeah, yeah. We, let's take a break because that's totally fine. At this point, we are maybe close to halfway through this man's depravity. And and I'm just letting you know, it gets worse from here. So before we, before we take this break, um, I do want to talk about something and this is purely speculation, purely hypothesis. In my opinion, I don't see 14 women agreeing to let David Hiles photograph them in such a compromising situation. Like we know that David Hiles is a rapist. And my hypothesis is that he uses like church business to get them alone. Like 
and say like, I need to see you for like church business or whatever. And then he will assault them and then use the photographs as blackmail and like as a threat to destroy their lives and marriage. And like in a world and in a world where the word of men is always put above the word of women, this is a logical hypothesis to me, at least. And it makes so much more sense than him carrying on more than a dozen simultaneous consensual affairs with married women, all of whom are allowing him to photograph them, especially in a culture that so heavily emphasizes modesty. I have a couple of thoughts on that. So I mentioned this a second ago when we talked in the last episode about the supposed physical evidence of the Hiles-Nistrick affair, probably love letters. We don't know what it is. Vic Nistrick says he has it, but has never been able to produce it. Um, Not saying he doesn't have it. I'm just saying that it would be nice to see it. This briefcase of photos, according to the legend, was locked in a safety deposit box or a storage unit by the deacon board or the janitor. So it might still exist. And I think the actual content of these photos would be helpful in trying to determine whether your hypothesis is true. Um, Second, some things that we're going to find out about the next few years of his life can shed some light on the pictures. I think there is some evidence to show that pictures are kind of like a fetish of his that does not negate the idea that all of these pictures were consensual. It is another facet to be considered in all of this. Okay, I mean, but like Jeffrey Dahmer took pictures of all of his victims. Uh, After they were dead, though, I think that's different. So, I mean, they still didn't want their pictures taken. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I do. So the other thing, though, I do think that Brenda Stevens was a consensual affair. And I know of someone else who I am choosing not to name on this podcast, but we will reference her. I think there is abundant evidence that she, as an adult, sought out and had a consensual affair with David at First Baptist Church. While I would be 0% surprised to find out that he had raped adults as well as minors, I don't think all of these affairs were that, and I have some evidence to show why I have this opinion and that that's coming up for you. And well, I do want to say that David was raised in a world where like any level of sexual deviance is strictly taboo. So it's not outlandish to think that in his mind, there would be like no difference between the evil of rape and the evil of adultery. I think that is a super good take because David himself on his now defunct blog, which can be found through the Wayback Machine, refers to everything in this episode as, quote, my fall into sin or like my mistakes. And I I think to wonder if it's all the same to him, I think that's a really fair question. And with that, um, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and continue this story. I'm going to go see who won the Indy 500. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Gavriel here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Leaving Eden Podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden Podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. Yeah, okay, we are back. Uh, Thank you for waiting. So before the break, uh, we talked about David Hiles upbringing his early rise to prominence in the IFB movement. We talked about at least two rapes of minors while in his role at youth pa- as youth pastor at First Baptist Church. Quickly moved to Texas, the 14-plus affairs there, the discovery of the infamous briefcase that finally ended his marriage sent him packing back to Hammond in shame. But before we took that break, we were discussing how to guess whether or which of David's affairs were consensual. And isn't it likely that at least some of these pictures were blackmail material? Look, I don't know what was consensual and what wasn't. I just know that this guy is a scumbag and he needs to be in jail. Hashtag arrest David Hiles. Oh, dude, we have not even gotten to the most insane part yet, but it's right around the corner. So really quickly, I wanted to provide a little bit of context for an affair within the IFB before we continue with David's story. Okay. So something that I think we had to cut for time in the second Jack Hiles episode is the persistent rumors that there was a very sinister reason that Hiles Anderson College students were not allowed to have membership at local gyms. According to multiple sources, there was a certain gym, a certain 24-hour gym near the college that basically functioned like a sex club for First Baptist Church and Hiles Anderson staff members and staff wives. Ew. And a 24-hour fitness? That's gross. Eh, well, oh, yeah. So there's another story that I learned nasty. just more recently. Like, like in the locker room? Uh, yeah, like or they lo- would like oh. meet there and go to other places. Ew. But yeah, there's there's another story that I just learned this week about a woman who had an affair with David Hiles. This lady is later caught in the dark church auditorium alone with another First Baptist Church, very high-ranking staff member, like 16 years later. And that guy, by the way, was rumored to have been caught coming out of a boy's boys dorm at Hiles Anderson with yet another woman. It's like these people work at an Outback Steakhouse. (laughs) Oh, service industry joke. I'm telling you, yeah, everybody gets a piece of the bloom and onion. See, I was going to say it's like a local band scene where everybody is everybody's ex and they're all in the same bands together, but the Outback also works. That's accurate, but... Um, I mean, so around the same time, so we're talking early 80s, there is also an unmarried woman on Hiles Anderson's staff for decades who was well known to be sleeping with a couple of female students at a time, just kind of, you know, one of those rotating door kind of things around the same time. And I think we mentioned this one in the second Hiles episode. There are two or three different Hiles Anderson staff men that I know of who slept with Hiles Anderson students. Even as recently as when I was there, someone saw a certain staff member on a hookup app. 
So as much as there is a culture of purity and these things are taboo to the rank and file member at the church, once you get high enough into the FBC elite, a very debaucherous world opened up to you. If your last name is Hiles, if you're instrumental in covering up for someone with the last name of Hiles, if you're valuable to the man who's building his personal empire, then you not only get to break the rules, you get to live like Caligula while preaching about long skirts and not seeing movies. It's like a secret club. Wow. And it's a basic part of human sexuality. That's greasy. I mean, it is, but like what's taboo becomes hot. Like, it's, it's foundational to, to human sexuality. It's the foundation for like a huge majority of kinks and fetishes that people have. So if you look at it that way, like showing knees and shoulders is incredibly hot to these people. Just like kissing somebody or being in a car alone or holding hands is a big deal. And the secrecy becomes the thing that is hot. The, the sneaking around and the secrets and the massive stakes if you get caught. Like, that's what becomes, like, the driving force for these people. I guess that's why they have to pray so much to resist the temptation. So I'm illustrating the difference between the foot soldiers of the IFB and the elite. Because among the little people, you have to be good. But Hiles gets to be the only bad boy in town. Exactly. It's only the select few who get to exploit everyone else. And it turns out that it's not just financially and emotionally exploiting these people and exploiting their labor. There's sexual exploitation as well. So surprising. No, not at all. So I mention or I downplay my background to different levels depending on what social situation I'm in. And a lot of times I just say, oh, I was raised in a strict religious group and I move on and I don't really talk about it if it's, you know, not appropriate situation. Right. But I have friends who like to introduce me as, this is Sadie. She was raised in a cult. I've done this on multiple occasions. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times this is at, at party. The last time this happened to me in, in like real life was at a Christmas party that I was at. I want to be entertaining in that kind of situation. So I will sometimes say like I was raised in a sex cult or I was raised in a fertility cult. And this situation, I think this contributes to why I can say that. And not have that be a lie. Because once you start digging around in the history of the IFB and how the power structures work, sex and sexuality and sexual control, like all of these are major parts of the mechanism of the IFB machine. I guess I never put two and two together. But now that you've said that, it makes complete sense, especially with like the story with Dave Hiles. Well, the IFB is really successful as far as high control groups go. It really keeps its members under its thumb, especially for a group that... They don't have a compound. They don't have locked gates. They don't actually go to people's houses and enforce their rules. For not having any of that, they do a really, quote, good job keeping their people under the the thumb of leadership. It's my opinion that this is possible because of a few major methods of control. And sexual repression and sexual control are one of the biggest and most foundational of those methods, if you ask me. This is a really fascinating take. Um, and I think that it hits at the core of why this David Hiles story, it's uh, so important to the history of the IFB. But I want to get back to David Hiles because things are about to like take a hard left turn here. So after being kicked out of Miller Road Baptist Church, David and his girlfriend, Brenda Stevens, take Brenda's newborn son, Brent, and hightail it back to the Hammond area. They don't rejoin First Baptist Church of Hammond. So best as I know, they are peripherally involved in the ministries in small ways. Uh, Dave still hangs out with male Hiles Anderson's college students. 
There is footage. Yeah. There's footage that suggests that Brenda was teaching at a First Baptist related school, but I cannot back up whether that was actually the case or if that was misused footage. So I'm working on confirming that before I claim it as fact. So Brenda leaves her older children in Texas with her ex-husband and David's two children stay with his ex-wife, Paula. Brent was born on June 5th, 1984, and David and Brenda head back to the Northwest Indiana area around fall of 1984. So he's just a newborn. And so Brent is David and Brenda's son. Uh, supposedly Brent is Brenda's son by her ex-husband, Mr. Stevens. Brent has the Stevens last name and her ex-husband, as far as I know, is on the birth certificate as the father. But. Yeah. So we don't know when the David and Brenda affair started, but if it was any time before roughly September of 1983, then it's possible that Brent could be David's child. But we, we do not know. So um, I did want to say, listeners, this is the worst. This is about the worst part coming up here. This is your final chance to nope out of discussion of the very suspicious death of a 17-month-old child. And it's going to take us about five minutes or so to discuss it. So if you want to skip that completely, that's how far you need to go. So between late fall of 1984 and November of 1985, Brenda and David are not married to each other. They are living in a house in Indiana, not too far from First Baptist Church. Living in sin. Yeah. But they're doing a whole hell of a lot worse than having sex with someone they're not married to. Uh, Baby Brent is brought to the hospital at least once with signs of abuse, uh, multiple broken bones in different phases of healing, very classic signs of child abuse. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Brent is returned to his father in Texas temporarily, but somehow David and Brenda get custody back very shortly after that. Uh, no one seems to know how that happened. Let's like, let's just get it over with. Um, okay. On November 2nd, 1985, toddler Brent Stevens, 17 months old, is found dead in his crib after a 911 call from David. When investigators come to the house, they do find some concerning evidence. So first they find that the heat in the house is on high. It's very warm inside. And the little toddler's body is just covered in like every blanket in the house. But he's also already in rigor. So he'd been dead for like at least 24 hours. Uh, Six to 12 hours at the very least, which is still a long time not to check on your 17 month old. So the other thing that investigators find is an empty bottle of Actifed. Actifed is a children's like low dose type of Sudafed. And like how much of how much was in that when it was full? So I do not know. I haven't been able to get a hold of the prescription yet. Um, I am looking because I'm me. Uh, I do know for sure that the prescription was filled the day before. So it was a full prescription. And it was empty in one day. Yeah, it was empty and none of the medicine could be accounted for. Like there were no spills obvious or like any other reason to think, oh, the medicine went here. And I did check with someone, by the way, who has drug knowledge. And they said that an overdose of Actifed uh, could certainly kill a little baby. Do we know like the cause of death for Brent? So that's the other issue. Okay, I'm sorry. I get a little bit worked up over this one. I have no need to apologize. A small child died. Yeah. Yeah. So... There was a detective assigned to Brent's case. His name is Paul Cialino. Mr. Cialino said that from the beginning and to this day, he thought that Dave and or Brenda was responsible for the death, uh, accidentally or on purpose. The first thing that Mr. Cialino tries to get is an autopsy of Brent. 
But the, yeah, this is unsuccessful. Right, because David and Brenda had Brent autopsied first at a local hospital. So, in other words, not by a coroner or a forensics expert or someone with more knowledge of death by foul play or any kind of specialized knowledge. The hospital autopsy was done immediately, just as soon as they could, and then they had the body embalmed immediately meaning that any other autopsy would be pretty useless because any evidence in his blood and his organs, which is where evidence of poisoning would be, was gone. So there is no way for the detective to confirm or rule out a homicide. Exactly. So Mr. Cialino has said on record many times that he always thought if he could have gotten proper toxicology results, he could have put one or both of them in jail. But since Brent was embalmed and on his way to Texas for burial by the time he'd been pronounced dead 24 hours, there was no chance of ever getting that evidence. So everything we have is circumstantial. So I dropped the hashtag arrest David Hiles. Just because he's definitely a rapist, but it turns out that he's like possibly a child murderer as well. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. So there was a coroner's inquest into this case and the depositions. David took the stand long enough to state his name, his address, his occupation and plead the fifth. Brenda didn't show up to the inquest. And David just got to walk free, Mm -hmm. even though he and his wife like clearly destroyed the evidence. So I will link in the show notes to the full text of the statement that David made in court. It's very short. One or both of them is likely responsible for the death of their son, her son, who knows? And yes, both of them walked free. So is this because they were clever and lucky? Is this, you know, could it be that Brent died completely accidentally uh, and they just got lucky with the quick autopsy thing? I mean, can you imagine if there was... A, a purely accidental death in your house, having the presence of mind to quickly cover your butt against any legal repercussions. I mean, if there was an accidental death in my house, I would like immediately want to know why or like how or like what I could possibly do to prevent anything like this from happening in the future. I would like, I would want closure, you know. I uh, think like I would want to know, you know, my baby didn't suffer or like that he wasn't conscious or that he didn't feel alone. Like, like if the police or a detective came by, I think I would be too in shock to try to cover anything up. See, I, I agree. And if there was a, a coroner's inquest, I, I don't imagine that you would give your name, address and occupation and then say, quote, on the advice of counsel, I decline to answer any more questions, end quote. I mean, I also imagine that you would show up to the inquest of your child all this reads sour to me. I don't like it one bit. And I'm so mad. And like Brent, like he deserved to live and decide for himself what he wanted to do with his life. And that was stolen away from him. I'm yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, it, it is heartbreaking. It's rage inducing. He was an innocent little baby, but if this kid had lived, he would have been almost a decade older than the two of us. He would be like a full grown adult with a family. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even be 40 yet. Yeah. He would have been a real person. But like I need I need for us to move on to what happens next in the story because otherwise I'm not going to be able to finish the episode. I'm like I'm so mad about this right now. That's yeah. understandable yeah. and you're right, he deserved better. So unfortunately the ending of this is really anticlimactic. David and Brenda conceive a child the month after Brent dies. Your wait, your baby dies and you immediately get to creating another one. Apparently. That makes me so angry. I am sorry to put you through this. This is like the the most like truly true crimey episode we ever get to do. David and Brenda. So 
she has the baby 10 months after Brent dies. So, yeah, it's pretty obvious. Um, yeah. David and Brenda need to get married now that she's pregnant. But Jack Hiles doesn't want to do the wedding because she's pregnant out of wedlock. So he has his right-hand man and son-in-law, Jack Scott, perform the wedding. Jack Scott is the same guy who wrote the book Dating with a Purpose from episode four. He is coming back over the next two episodes in the series just to finish up this destructive, unholy mess of a family. Oh, oh yeah. So uh, throughout the rest of the 80s and the early 90s, David and Brenda live in the Chicago area. They're peripherally involved with the family and the church, but he's never on staff at First Baptist Church of Hammond again. In the Battle of 1989 episode, the last uh, Jack Howes episode we did, you told me that Jack Hiles was having to tell people not to pay attention to some horrible thing that his son had done. But this that's not in reference to anything that we've talked about yet. No. Is it? Is it? No, that's the next big thing. Uh, so it turns out that David, among other nasty habits that we've discussed, has a bit of a, of a habit for accidentally disrupting pastor school. Because you remember us talking about pastor school a lot in the Hiles episode. It's that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When he was like, okay, this is how we, we train our, our pastors or whatever. That conference that he has, it draws thousands and thousands of people. And he tells everybody how to have a great church like he does. During pastor school 1990, David was found having sex in a car out by the railroad tracks behind the church with a First Baptist Church member. And it's not 100% certain, but as far as we know, this is the same woman who inquired about his blood type a few years before. And this is this woman goes on to have another child roughly nine months after this pastor school. Does it ever end with this man? No, it absolutely doesn't. The next thing I'm about to tell you is the last huge bombshell. So after that, it's just sewing up the rest of his dirty deeds. But this is the last like huge thing. We, we almost made it. Okay. So the incident with the, the car at the railroad tracks and car sex as an adult is not what Jack Hiles was speaking about from the pulpit. So the incident, though, with the with the car sex is not what Jack Hiles was speaking about from the pulpit. How? What else has this man done? Oh, it's so much worse. So pastor school Gosh. 1991, a group of concerned Christians stood outside the church building at First Baptist Church of Hammond, handing out flyers to the thousands of pastor school attendees. So on the flyers were heavily censored but recognizable images of Brenda... Stevens Hiles posing for ads in a swingers magazine Two Chicago area swingers magazines to be precise. It also included personal ads reportedly placed by David and Brenda inviting people to join them for group sex. So I'm going to try to track down these flyers before this goes to air. I know that I have seen a photocopy of the pastor school flyers online somewhere before, like years ago. I am having so much trouble relocating it now that I actually need it for things. Like this is somehow the least objectionable thing that this man has done. You know oh, what? Yeah. If you are engaging in consensual activities with other people, however you meet those people, you know, that's fine and dandy. I find it most upsetting that this is the thing that David Hiles has done that these concerned Christians find most objectionable. Not the child rape, not the likely coerced sex with blackmail, not the possible murder of a one-year-old, but the fact that he and his wife have atypical sexual preferences. I know. And and the fact that it's this that his father feels that he has to make a public statement about, this is what Jack Hiles has to get in the pulpit and like actually come clean about 
after almost 20 years of covering up, quote, indiscretions on David's part and 11 full years of covering up actual crimes. So clearly, David Hiles is no longer welcome at First Baptist Church or in the surrounding community. So after the pastor school incidents, he fades into like semi-obscurity for a couple of years. Uh, he pops back up on staff at an IFB church in Florida. And he does really well at the church in Florida. He lasts like five so or six years. When you say he does really well, do you mean that he manages to go five or six years without raping or murdering anybody? When I say does really well, I mean he goes five years before getting caught with his pants down. Like the bar is literally in the basement. It could not be any lower, dear Lord. So sadly, during the time in Pinellas Park, another Hiles child dies under mysterious circumstances. Another one? Yeah. uh, In March of 1999, it's Jack David, who is David and Brenda's youngest child. Uh, By the way, Jack David would have been within a couple months of yours and my age had he lived. He was a little bit younger than you, I think, just a couple months. Uh, But he was in the car with his mother about to leave home and drive to church. As she backed out of the driveway, Jack David somehow fell out of the car, got tangled in his seatbelt, and fell under the wheels of the car where he was run over and died. So I I cannot say for sure if there was a criminal or civil investigation. A news article I saw does point to at least some kind of a, a cursory investigation. But this happened in Florida yeah. and Brent died in Indiana. So mm-hmm. this was before like the internet was widely used by these police forces to share data. So they couldn't look up this family's history with children dying under mysterious circumstances. Right, because this guy this guy's a pastor. Why would we go investigate his past? Surely he's a good man. They probably wouldn't have gone to the extra trouble to check into his background. Let me pull this up. I'm looking at the article about his the Tampa death Bay right Times here. Yeah, the that Tampa Bay Times yeah. article that you just sent to me. It's It says that in the investigators are not sure how it happened. Yep. They are not sure how it happened. So I'm not completely unwilling to believe that Jack David's death was an accident. But I absolutely agree that in consideration of another mysterious death of a son 14 years earlier, that a full investigation would have been a good idea on the part of the police department. And weirdly, this is actually something that I heard about as a child. So my mom heard this story through the IFB grapevine somehow. And my mom told this to me. So you and I would have been, I would have been five six when jack david died you would have been about to turn six and my mom told me this story as like a cautionary tale about don't ever unbuckle your seatbelt don't ever get out of the car don't ever open the door until i tell you it's okay so this is this is the first thing that i start to hear about this as i'm a kid so this story is kind of meaningful to me for that reason no one on earth including brenda who is driving the car seems to have a scientific explanation for how this happened for me for the life of me i do not understand how these people are not in jail so i don't don't know if this is going to be a comfort to you at all but there's no more illegal parts to the story right now just a couple more classic dave moments and we're done okay let me guess he gets caught with a married woman in the burger king bathroom that's not that far off. Did you <clears throat> did you need the Burger King square for your Dave Hiles bingo card? No, you know what? I've been thinking about this wrong. They're Christians. So it must have been a, <laughs> must have been a Chick-fil-A. It was a orgy in Detroit. But that was not a bad guess. You know what? I'm not even mad about that. I just feel bad for all the people that didn't know that one of the guys at their orgy was a child rapist and probably murdered two children. Like who caught him anyway? Like presumably if you're at an orgy, you're there for the same reason as everybody else and you're not going to rat them out. 
So I honestly have no idea how he got caught on this one. I have heard that he got busted because a church secretary was also participating, which would make sense because that particular church secretary was later arrested for prostitution. She was like a sex worker and a madam. And then she was booked when she was booked for her arrest um, under identifying marks. You can find a tattoo on her inner thigh that reads David's girl. How was she arrested and he wasn't? This is upsetting. Legalized sex work. Hashtag, uh, oh, yeah. hashtag legalized sex work. Anyway. Hashtag arrest Dave Hiles. Hashtag legalized sex work. So, okay. So what are these degenerates up to in 2020? Well, after, so after the, the orgy in Detroit, Dave Hiles moves to another church. Another one? <laughs> another one. Another one. Why do these churches keep letting this child rapist and probably murderer into their congregation? So uh, what I can tell you is the pastor of the first church in Florida and the pastor of the second church in Florida are supposedly really good friends. So it's a little odd they didn't warn each other. The thing is that all of this was was still being covered up by First Baptist of Hammond and by Jack Hiles and by the IFB's prohibition on gossip. Like you don't gossip, you don't talk bad about somebody. So people were like too scared. Not even to warn them that like, oh, this guy, like literally everywhere that he goes... Well, he said that Jesus fixed him. Like, David said that Jesus fixed him. Oh, stop. So, I mean, so I think we mentioned in the Jack Hiles episode, my people would try to tell my mother, like, people would try to tell her, like, have you heard about what's going on? Like, when my parents were still at First Baptist Church of Hammond, and my mom would say, no, I don't want to hear it, because that was what she'd been trained to say, like, what she'd been trained to think. But I, I, I don't know. David has affairs with a few dozen women at both the first and the second church. He bounces from church to church and deacon's wife to deacon's wife. Eventually, after 2000, he finally kind of fades into obscurity for about a decade. Jerry Massey, who is somebody who will come up a lot on this podcast. She tried to warn a pastor of one of these church that he went to. Uh, he didn't, pastor didn't listen. Dave is pretty, still attending IFB churches, but he's pretty much being quiet. And then around 2012, 2013, he discovers the internet and he writes a lot of angsty Facebook posts and blog posts about how God has forgiven him for his sins. And now everybody else should too. How presumptuous of a literal child rapist to claim to know the intent of God's consciousness. Yeah. yeah. So he starts a ministry for other, quote, fallen pastors. Uh, he literally calls it fallen in grace ministries. Uh, some IFB pastors actually support him. Most don't. He finally, uh, it has finally, after two mysterious deaths and literally hundreds of affairs, he has finally gotten to the point where he actually can't find a job at an IFB church. So, like we talked about, Joy Evans Ryder, who we love, fights in the state legislature to get the statute of limitations changed. Once that change is made, she's able to sue him in civil court. And the case was submitted right before COVID happened. So we don't know yet whether a judge will be willing to hear the case. And this is ongoing. This is an ongoing case. Yeah. And we will put on our uh, our social media, I can track down the name of the judge we can put that on our social media for anyone who would like to write a letter and encourage the judge to hear this this case against David Hiles. Well, I think I think it goes without saying that David Hiles, for once in his life, needs to be held accountable for his actions. But this, like mm -hmm. in David's uh, in David's blog post, he talks about having quote unquote fallen into sin, and this is a theme that I see repeated over and over throughout the story, like that somebody has quote fallen into sin. 
it is their personal decisions and their personal unholiness that cause them to make these choices. That this is the same argument that uh, basically the same uh, you know personal choices argument that fraternities use to shift blame off of themselves for the sexual mm-hmm. misconduct and like sexual assaults committed by their members. It's the same argument that police use when one of them gets caught on camera brutalizing or abusing somebody. And the issue here is not the individual. The issue here with David Hiles is never the individual. Like monsters exist. Monsters are everywhere, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And what you do about them, in my mind, what you do about them is where we get to the difference between right and wrong. So the IFB system, it's set up by men who wanted to cover something. It's set up by men who had rage and anger problems, anger management issues and wanted to cover for it. Men who wanted to be able to commit adultery and commit rape and just cover it up and not face any consequences. Or men who had greed for money and possessions or greed for power or any any number of other things that they needed to cover up. So the system is uniquely suited to hide and excuse and pass blame for someone like David Hiles because it is literally built by and for men who had something to hide. Back to Dave Hiles, he he is an evil man. Even if we depend only on, so if we depend on the most reliable information about him, we know for sure that the the very the most reliable it's it's an actual court case with a very credible witness. There is there is it is almost a hundred percent certain that he's a rapist, and it is almost a hundred percent certain that he caused the death of Brent Stevens either on purpose or by extreme negligence. And it is 100% certain that he's a homewrecker and that he has purposely harmed other people's marriages and ruined their lives in that way. And that's just relying on the most reliable of all this information, not giving into anything that's just, that's just gossip or just a rumor. But his entitlement, the reason that he thought he could do all of these things and just get away with it and just turn around and be IFB famous again that is the system of abuse. So obviously the IFB, like, they're not going to have David Hiles as their leader. No. Somewhere at some point, David Hiles went too far. So before his death, Jack Hiles began to raise up a new heir to the throne. And we're going to uh, continue that story two weeks from now. Um, and we'll talk about that. And be sure to tune in next week um, when we're going to... I don't know what we're going to have for the, the episode, but something that is not involving murder is what we're going to have. <laughs> something not involving murder. And then Sadie's going to watch Titanic and talk about that. Yeah. I think um, I'm actually going to do that tonight. Okay. Well, yeah. But we, yeah, but I promise whatever we have between this episode and the next one in the series, it will be light and fluffy and funny <laughs> and no one will die. Next episode in the series, though, we are going to get a, a break from, all the nastiness. Uh, the next episode, we are going to go back to the form that we used in episode one of this series about Jack Hiles. We're going to get a little bit psychological, dig into some deep IFB Bible translation drama, which I promise I can actually tell in a way that will be interesting to you. And we're going to watch the IFB engine start to smoke, uh, which will quickly lead to a crash and burn of epic proportions. <laughs> I'm especially um, excited for this upcoming section of the saga because it's a section that you were actually there for personally. Yeah. So that is so exciting to me. 
Uh, on the upcoming fourth episode in the series, we're going to be talking almost entirely about things I remember, which is new, because so far we've been talking about things almost entirely that that I know about, but that I didn't experience myself. So episode, the next one, episode four of the series is stuff that I remember happening. And then episode five, we're going to be talking about things that I had a terrifying front row seat for. Uh, So I think this episode has the greatest number of like individual crimes. But to me, I almost feel like the series is just starting to ramp up because we're finally getting into things where I can give you my actual first person memories. Anyway, until next time, uh, my name is Gabriel Hakoan. You've been listening to the Leaving Eden podcast here with Sadie Carpenter. You can uh, follow the podcast on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Facebook and Instagram, it's Leaving Eden Podcast. Twitter is at Leaving Eden Pod. Um, If you have any questions for us, uh, anything that you want us to talk about, uh, send us an email at leavingedenpod at gmail.com. You can find me on social media. Uh, I'm Gavriel Hakoen, G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And Sadie, if you want to plug your social. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Sadie Carpenter Music or on Twitter at Hell yes Sadie and uh, hashtag Arrest David Hiles. Hashtag Arrest David Hiles. Okay. That'll be the title for our episode. Hashtag Arrest David Hiles. Um, anyway, uh, until next time, I uh, hope you guys have a good day. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.